That is our hope. Alive, but even more so. Before we look at uh, God's word this morning, uh, let's, let's spend a moment in prayer. I'll lead us in prayer, and then we'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 11 again. Make sure I have my little clicker here. Okay. I think we're good. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you again this morning for your eternal power and uh, the promise of life with you in a new heaven and new earth. Uh, we thank you for your everlasting love that works together uh, with your everlasting power for our protection as your children. And just like that father, that, that dad that said to Jesus, um, we believe, but help us with our unbelief. Father, this morning as we look into your word at this uh, wonderful chapter, we too are asking for faith, faith to believe that you truly do rule the world with truth and righteousness. Faith to believe that we truly seek first your kingdom and righteousness, then you will provide all those other needs. Father, we ask for faith to let go of our anxiety and our fears that have maybe taken in a place into our bones. We ask for faith to see your purpose of love unfolding under the lordship of Jesus Christ. We ask for faith to be calm, to believe in the power of your love, to melt the hard hearts and swallow up sin. Father, we ask for faith to put our trust in you rather than force or violence or harsh words, especially those who come against us. Father, we ask to believe in the ultimate victory of the Holy Spirit over disease and death and darkness. And Father, we ask for faith to endure the hard stuff that comes our way. We ask for faith that... Uh, to leave to you what is your job and not take it upon ourselves and trust to be faithful in whatever you've called us to do, whatever you've called us to endure. We ask that you teach us to follow those who went before us and all those who have trusted you in the past. Empower us, give us a joyful countenance and a life-giving spirit of peace and mercy. And we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be looking at Hebrews chapter 11, verses uh, 17 through 40 this morning. It's the last section of this uh, famous chapter of uh, the, the heroes of the faith, so to speak. It's kind of considered, it's called the Hall of Faith a lot of times. Um, this is a painting by uh, Francois Millet that hung in my in-law's house for years, or a copy of it, not the actual painting, but the, a copy of it uh, hung in this, this, uh, their house. It's a, it's a painting that uh, a lot of Iowans like, uh, the people praying over their field because it's got farming in it, uh, it's got soft colors in it, it's got noble people in it, it's got prayer in it. Uh, it's just kind of a, a painting that just kind of reeks of, of warmth. But when this painting was first displayed, it really caused an uproar in the, in the artistic community in France back in 1857. Uh, they said it didn't, it didn't capture what was, what was dignified, what was great in it. And uh, in fact, he, he, um, he wanted to paint 
these kinds of things. He, uh, he grew up on a farm as a peasant himself. He said, they said, you don't paint things with peasants. You don't paint things like that. That doesn't, that doesn't raise our ideals. Well, he grew up as a peasant, as, and he just assumed that he'd be taken over the family farm. But it was his dad who kind of instilled this love of nature and love of beauty in him. And his dad actually pushed him to, to pursue his talent in art. And so he would capture these things in, in art, uh, things like that... Um, of the, of the earth, this, uh, the, uh, of the people, for example, the gleaming of the peasants here. Uh, he, he, loved, uh, he said he loved capturing humanity. He had a love for humanity, and he wanted to express the character of their souls, and, uh, and such as the sower, um, the shepherd girl. He said, I wanted to capture and express, I wanted to capture truth as it is perceived through the eyes of love. And uh, when this one came out, uh, the calf, the calf being brought in from the field, uh, one of the critics said, said, how dare them? You know, he was just appalled and outraged because it looks like they're carrying this calf as if it were something divine. And his response was, well, how else would you carry it? <laughs> he had a, a great sense of what was beautiful, what was good, and his love for humanity. But the critics hated it at the beginning because for them, if it was going to be dignified, it needed to be pictures of ladies and lords and kings and queens or, or great historic events or maybe even the great themes of Greek mythology. That's what, he said, that's what raises the high ideal. That's what raises human greatness. And he went just the opposite. He said, these are the things that glorify God's creation. He was a strong man of faith. And finally, one of the critics did get it after he had died, of course. That happens to artists, doesn't it? He said that uh, he was constantly seeking what was essential, and he found it. That's the way I read the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 11. If this was written of like Greek mythology, we would see in chapter 11, we would see kings and queens and ladies and lords and nobles and great historic events and and, uh, and great heroes, and, and if it was like Greek mythology, we would see these gods and we would, uh, over their empire and these riches and glory and, and all these great things. That's what we would see, but that's not what we see in the book of Hebrews. This list in the book of Hebrews are the peasants. There is one king mentioned, that's David. But by and large, we have prisoners in here. We have uh, sheep farmers we have nomads, we have uh, some prophets, and we even have a Gentile prostitute listed here. These are the people that display what he says is faith. And we're getting to this last section of the chapter, and it's long, so we're not going to read the whole thing, but he's kind of given us some episodes here to kind of see this is what faith looks like. Uh, in the section we saw before, he kind of, you remember he defines faith. He says it is this assurance of what's going to happen in the future. It's this assurance of our hope backed up by conviction of things that are unseen. In other words, it's this hope that we have in the future that's backed up by what we believe to be unseen. And these people are the people who believe things that were unseen. And they look forward to the hope. We've talked about the first section of Hebrews of, be, of faith being um, uh, uh, something that, that allows you to see. 
It's not seeing something that's visible, but it, you have faith and then you're able to see. Like C.S. Lewis said, I believe in the sunrise not so much because I see the sun, but because I see everything else. Well, that's the idea of Hebrews here. We, we believe because we don't necessarily see God, the invisible God, the heavens at this point. But because of that, we begin to see everything else. And it all starts to make sense. And it all starts to harmonize, which we'll look at in a minute. And so he comes up and he, he's given us these sections of how faith looks like. In the, in the first part of the, the chapter, the first part of the book, I'm sorry, of Hebrews, he's talking about these objective truths about sacrifices in the temple and, and how Christ is, is uh, the final sacrifice and how his blood is the redemption. It's kind of these objective, almost theologies. And then in chapter 11, he's given us the subjective part of the truth, the, the part that it's the, the human part. He's gone from the conceptual to the experiential and how these people experienced faith and how they lived it out. And so we get to this last section and we see Abraham, who we see this idea, his faith in the face of testing. Faith in testing. He has already mentioned Abraham once and then we had this break in the chapter, but now he goes on to talk about that famous story in the book of Abraham, which uh, personally I, um, I don't enjoy very much. I don't like this story. Uh, I, I don't like talking about it or reading about it or preaching about it. It just, as a dad, it just gets you and just, it just goes against everything in my being. But we see in the life of Abraham that he's got these steps of growth in his, in his life of faith after God's called him. And they're falling, they're failings, they're regrets, they're coming, and then he keeps going up, up. But basically, every step of his faith, every step of this growth of faith for him is for him to let go of something so he can grab onto something better. So they can grab onto something. And now we reach the climax of this story where God is asking him to let go what is, what is everything in his being to let go of his son and sacrifice him to God. And how do we do that? How do we handle these things when we see something happen in our, happening to us or God seems to be asking us something that just goes against his character? That there's this contradiction. He's asking, asking Abraham to do this and this is not just the son, this is the son of the promise. This is the son that God promised and said, your, your, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And now he's asking for the son back. And how does he put those two things together? This is, of course, the climactic request of letting go of one thing so he can grab a hold of something else. And I have to say, this is really hard for me to swallow. This is attacking Abraham at his most vulnerable spot as a parent, as a father. And yet it is a simple story and yet it is incredibly profound. He is asking, God is the one who is asked us to give up everything, but at the same time, he's the same God who provides everything. And that's what's difficult for us to, to handle that we have to give up things, but we're giving them up to a person who provides everything. And we on this side know that he has. We on this side know that he too has risked everything by becoming a man and letting humanity do its worst. He has risked it all. And so for that reason, we can trust him. And for that reason, we can put our faith and let go of the Isaacs in our life to cling on to him 
and then see how he's going to resurrect those things. Because that's what Hebrews says that Abraham did. The only way Abraham could put these two things together, that God has promised him this, and now he's asking this, and the only thing that Abraham could, way he could put those two things together, Hebrews tells us, is because somehow he would resurrect his son. And so in the book of Hebrews, this story has kind of become a parable of the resurrection, which is one of the reasons I want to be able to read that passage. This has kind of become a picture of what our hope is. This has become a parable of the resurrection itself because he's taken a son that is as good as dead. And remember last week in verse 13, the Hebrews called Abraham a father who was just as good as dead. And out of that, he fulfills his promise. Out of that, he rescues Isaac and he does fulfill his promise. And Abraham, his descendants are as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. And it is all fulfilled pointing to Christ and his resurrection. All fulfilled in him. The church doesn't displace Israel. Israel is not replaced. Israel is expanded to include us. Most of us, I think, here are Gentiles. And his descendants have become stars of the earth and grains of sand. And one of the things I want to mention here before we move on here is that the reason I think Abraham was willing to do this and able to do it is because he was God's friend. Hebrews doesn't mention it here, but three times in the Old Testament, Abraham is called God's friend, and friends trust each other. And I think this is what came out. This is why Abraham was able to carry out and do what he said, because he was God's friend. And I think that is so important for us to grasp, that we too can let go of those Isaacs in our life because friends trust each other. And I think the way to do that is develop that friendship with Jesus Christ. And out of that friendship comes trust. Out of that trans friendship comes faith. Um, Samuel T. Lloyd said, sacrifice is built into anything that finally matters. And we have this right off the bat. This is, the very, this is a very appropriate story to begin this last section of the book of Hebrews. That sacrifice is built into anything that finally matters. And Abraham's experienced it. He goes on to talk about Abraham's sons, which is appropriate. He mentions his son Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And let me go ahead and read those two verses at least. Uh, 20 and 22. He chose... <clears throat> I'm sorry. Um, where am I? Here we go. But by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, the image here, the theme here is the end of life. These are three people who have come to the end of life and Isaac was able to see what God was going to do with his two sons, Jacob and Esau, and he blessed them. Jacob, who... Frankly, it was a moral mess. But he ends up with his life worshiping deeper than he did at the beginning. In fact, he's leaning on a cane. He's leaning on a staff to worship. And he blesses Joseph's sons with faith. I think he's leaning on the, st on the staff. It's possible because he's gotten so old. Or it's also possible because he still is a reference to his hip. Remember, his hip is he limps because he was touched by God. 
And so in spite of all the, the shenanigans Jacob pulls, at the end of his life, he is worshiping deeper than he ever did. They never gave up hope. And finally, there's Joseph. And to me, Joseph is the, is the climax of the, of the Genesis message. It, Genesis begins with this sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel. Remember those two guys, okay? It begins there. And I think the sibling rivalry between brothers is a symbol of what humanity has become after the fall, constantly fighting each other. And it goes on to Ishmael and Isaac. It goes on to Jacob and Esau. And then finally it goes to Joseph's brothers who actually sell him into slavery. And then it reaches this, this climactic moment where Joseph forgives his brothers. And after he forgives his brother, he says, he says this. He makes his family promise that when we go to the promised land, take my bones with you. Why does he do that? Because he believes in the promise. All three of these guys did not live to see the fulfillment of the promise, but they never stopped believing. They never gave up hope. They never gave up trust. And Joseph, even to the very end, said, take my bones when you go to the promised land. And Exodus tells us that Moses took the bones when they went to the promised land, when they left Egypt. All at the end of life. And I think there are, some, there are a few lessons here that I think we need to get from these three men. Then we're going to kind of zoom through the rest of it a little bit. But I want to stop here for a moment because I think this is so relevant. First of all, it is so easy as we age, as we get older... To, that our faith become less vital, less significant, less active, as if we could retire from the kingdom of God. It's easy to become that. It's easy for our faith to, to morph into, into um, uh, paranoia or anger or apathy, any of those things. But if we, and you probably know people like that, certainly not any of us, I'm sure, but I bet we know people like that. The, as they've gotten older, their faith has just become more and more bitter, more and more petrified, more and more rigid. But then we also have people in our lives whose faith has become deeper and deeper, and their love for Jesus has become more deeper. Their love for humanity has become more rich. Their love for the world where God has put them has become deeper in, in, in Christ because of that. And these are the people we need to tap for wisdom. These are the people we need to hang around, regardless of our age. We need to be around them. We had a couple of people, in the, and Sue and I had a couple of people like that in our lives. And I'm thinking, immediately came to mind when I'm reading this passage, was Malin and Ann Collins, who were part of our mission agency. And they were just wonderful people. They took us in as, as young 30-year-olds with, with an infant getting ready to go to the mission field. And, we just, and you spend an evening with Malin and Ann, and you come away from there going, God is good, and he likes me. These are the kind of people we need to tap into. This is the kind of wisdom we need to look and seek after. These are the kind of people we need to become. People like that. So that's one. The other thing is that they never stop believing in the promises. We, too, are living kind of in an in-between time. We're living in what, they, what theologians called an already-not-yet where the kingdom has been inaugurated already, but it's not yet reached its culmination. And those promises are still pending for us. And we need to follow Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph and keep believing, hanging on there, whether we see those promises fulfilled in our lifetime or not. Hold on to those promises. 
And the other thing, the last thing I want to draw from this is that we need to count on God that he will continue working for those people that we love and hold dear even after we're gone. We may think it's up to us, but God will still be working on those people even after we're long gone, the people we love and hold dear. So we trust him for that. The next big section, he moves from faith in old age, faith in testing, to faith in oppression. And this is the story of, of Moses. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Most of us know the story. It starts out, according to the Hebrews, it starts off with his parents. His parents realized they were, they were told to, that the Pharaoh was, a fear, was fear, fearing the uh, Israelites. They're, in there, they're afraid that they were going to take over. So he had all the, the, the male children killed. Well, Moses' parents knew that God did not give children to kill them. And so they challenged the authority, and he went out of their way to save Moses, put him in a, in a river. We know the story. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So it starts off with the faith of the parents, and then that somehow is passed on to Moses. And Moses steps out, and, and, and I think one of the, some of the greatest passages, some of the greatest verses in this whole chapter are about Moses in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of the Messiah as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead at his reward. This is looking ahead. When you give up the privilege, the power, the prestige of being born or being raised in a house of royalty and giving it all up, and choosing affliction instead. And evidently, he had some kind, according to the author of Hebrews, he had some idea of the Messiah here, but he renounces everything to do this. And I really am thinking about this. This is When we think about high-profile Christian ministries, we really need to keep these people in prayer, these people who are on the TV, on the radio, musicians, preachers, that we need to keep them in prayer, protect them, because... It is so tempting. It is so alluring. Power and prestige and possessions. And Moses gives it all up because he looks ahead. And it would have been foolish at the time. But can any of you name a pharaoh besides King Tut, maybe? But we all know Moses. Because he gave up something that was eternal. And somehow he was able to believe in the invisible. He knew that there would be coming a Messiah. And then he instructs the people in the way of the Passover. And Jews to this day are still celebrating the Passover. And I believe this is really, you know this is important for the author of Hebrews because he just gave this big discussion on the sprinkling of blood. And so this is, this is super important because Jesus chose the time of the Passover to take those steps to the cross because it is his blood. What he is trying to tell, the, the symbolism was not lost on the disciples. What he was trying to tell us and the disciples is by his blood, by his blood, there is freedom. And by his blood, the house is safe. You're safe. The Jews sprinkled blood on their doorsteps and they marched to freedom, and they knew that in that house, they were safe. 
And that's the message of the Passover for us. That's the message that we take when we take communion. That it is safe and it is free, finally. Free from death, free from sin, free from evil. Finally, by the blood of Jesus. And then finally the story, the Exodus ends with the people who are passed through the Red Sea and they defeated the enemies of God's people based on their faith and trust. They were able to pass through all these experiences successfully. And he even mentions Rahab, the prostitute, who threw her lot in with God's people and threw her lot in with the people's king, Yahweh. And his point is to his readers and to us, throw your lot in with King Jesus. Throw your lot in with God's people and the king who represents them. It's like the peasants in Malay's painting. He, he comes up and he concludes this section with sort of an epilogue where he kind of gives a rundown on more people. Kind of, I'm calling it the family album. Where he kind of gives us all these different people. I, uh, I brought, uh, we have, how many bins of, of photo albums do we have in the house now? Like, like four or five plastic bins with these books all in them. And uh, Sue's parents gave, him, gave her this. It's got pictures, this is about her dad. And so it's got all these pictures and everything about her, this family album. Because it's important to know where we came from. And I think that's what the book of Hebrews is doing here. He's telling us where we came from. This is our family album. And he's saying, open it up. And he goes down and goes through the list of these, uh, these, these last group of people. He doesn't discuss them too much. He just kind of lists them. And I was talking with Sue last night. About, I'm, I was coming up, trying to come up with this last point of the outline. We've had faith in testing, faith in old age, faith in oppression. What about this one? And she goes, faith in whatever. <laughs> And that's kind of what it is. It's kind of faith in whatsoever, whatsoever happens, because we have this variety of faith here of these people who uh, express their faith. And he says, I could go on and on and on and on, but I don't have time. In other words, I think he's saying that faith is not that rare. You can do this. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. The list could go on and on and on. And he mentions... Several people, he mentions warriors, he mentions one king, he mentions the prophets, he mentions people that, um, he, he mentions people who are far from perfect, thinking primarily of Samson and, and, and Jephthah, two characters that are just actually kind of despicable in a way. But God doesn't wait on our character to rise to the occasion. If we have trust, we, we, we look at who he is not who we are. And I love the song, that last, one of the last lines of the song we just sang is about forgetting, I don't even have time to think about the regrets because he loves us so much. And I wish I could live that all my life, every minute, of forgetting the regrets because he loves us so much. He talks about the warriors, the judges, one king. He talks about the prophets who proclaim the word of God, which is not always popular. He, uh, he talks about the great triumphs of faith, the defeated armies, uh, the justice that is established by the prophets, 
the lion's mouth that were closed, obviously probably referring to Daniel, and then his friends, the fires that were quenched, uh, the battles that were won by David and the mighty men, uh, armies who were sent, sent fleeing, like the armies with Gideon, uh, the women who had, had children rose, risen from the dead because of Elijah and Elisha, and then you go into Jesus and then Peter and Paul in the New Testament. All this was happening. All this is a good side, these victories that we experience because of faith. But he said it's not always like that. It's not always have happy endings. He goes on to say others were tortured, refused to be released, that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers, flogging. Others were chained, put in prison. Some were stoned. Some were sawed in two. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. But then he adds this wonderful, beautiful, gentle line, the world is not worthy of them. The world is not worthy of them. It doesn't always end happily the way we think it should. And the world may not be worthy of them. But then he goes on and concludes with the summary. They were commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Let me go ahead and go to the last slide here. They were commended by their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that the only together with us they would be made perfect. We would be made perfect together. He ends where he begins. He says they were commended for us, and that's exactly how he, be he begins, chapter 11, that these people were commended. In other words, they were of noble character. And without the suffering, we would never know just how noble character they were. We would never realize that. Hinduism and Buddhism, they say that, that the, the, the goal is to leave this bodily worth, this bodily world. Christians and, Jews and Judaism and Christianity, they say uh, evil is a parasite on an essentially good creation. And there will be a resurrection, a spiritually bodily re resurrection. And this is our hope. And they were commended because of their noble character. And we want to look at these verses like Abraham and go, how can this happen to people who love and trust God? But it does. And he's telling us that evil, we can look at it and try to explain why this happens and why evil happens and why good things happen to, why bad things happen to good people and all that, thinking that it will make us feel a little bit better. But the point here that Hebrews is trying to make is, no, it's bad. In fact, it's very bad. But, but, we have the promise. Assurance for the future, backed up by faith in the invisible. And these people did it. They did it. And he's saying it's not that rare. Difficult, yes. Impossible, no. These are the signs of noble character. Finding your place in the story I want to finish up with some applications here. First, I want to talk to the people who are haunted by doubts. 
that you say, I want to believe, I want to follow Jesus, but I just, I've got these thousands of questions and thousands of doubts in my mind, and I can't seem to shake them. I'm going to press on. I'm going to do what I have to do. Well, to me, those persons are admirable because they're not faking it. They're honest. They're like that father who, who talked to Jesus and said, sure, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. That's where I find myself 95% of the time. I believe. Help me with my unbelief. These are the people we need that can listen to our doubts and not judge us. These are the people we need in our life to say, yeah, I've been there. I know what that feels like. But let me tell you, the mysterious love of God is fierce. It is fierce. And he will always stay there and say, I'm right here. I'm right here. Don't be afraid. They say alcohol, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say that the person starts, to, starts recovery when they, find the, when they find themselves on the far side of despair. Well, I would say that's true with faith, too. We start to trust more maybe when we fall, find ourselves on the, false side, the far side of hopelessness and realize the fierce love of God is there always. The way of faith is not an abstract an abstraction, but it is a concrete, visible, and formidable commitment. It's not something that we just sit back and, oh yeah, I believe that. Do you believe in God? Oh yeah, I believe God. I believe in God. That's not what faith is talking about here in Hebrews. It's stepping out. It's making this concrete, visible, and formidable commitment. Number three, God's plan has not failed and it cannot fail. God's kingdom will win. We have seen it through the history. We have seen it through the scripture. We just have to go through the family album. We've seen it happen. It cannot fail. I know a lot of us think that, that the action is in the state and it's easy to get where the action is and that's where we need to be and that's where we, we can get excited about campaigns and get evangelistic almost about campaigns. But the real action is the kingdom of God. That's what's going to last. That's what's eternal. That's where the promise is. And number four, growth in faith cannot be self-initiated. We can't psych ourselves up to do that. It's something we ask and receive. And I believe it flows out of a friendship with Jesus Christ. That we've developed that friendship with Jesus and it flows naturally out of that the trust. Number five, cultivate the virtue of patience. Patience and faith go hand in hand. Our society is built on progress and therefore impatience. We just do not have the patience. But these two things go, get, go together. Faith and patience must go together. We have to sit back and wait. And we will wait till Christ returns. And finally, the last one, go through the family album. Go through the family album. Read the stories. Sing the stories. Live the stories. Tell the stories. Tell your own story. Learn to tell that story. Go through the family album. Spend time in the scriptures. Experiment with reading speed. Sit down and set aside an hour and read through the book of Kings. 
And maybe when you get to Ephesians, maybe you want to slow down and you want to, you stop at a verse, like especially verses 1 through 14, and you stop at one and you go, I need to go out, go out for a walk. And you just go for a walk thinking about that one verse or that one word. Experiment with that, but know the stories. And learn how to tell the stories. C.S. Lewis says, a good author never says, look at me. A good author says, look at what I've seen. That's us. We don't tell people, look at me. We tell people, look at what I've seen. And tell the stories. I want to close with just a minute of silence. And I would like for you to, um, to think about, ask God to bring to your mind uh, people. It can be a biblical character or people in your life who have brought you trust, who have brought you to a point of faith, or who has encouraged you with God, about God in your walk and has encouraged you to trust and move on, thank God for that person. But not just thank God for the person, look at them and say, what can I learn from them? What did Malin Collins teach me about walking with Jesus? What did Ann Collins teach Sue about walking with Jesus? Think about that. Thank God for it. I'll close us in a few minutes, and then if you'll come on up and Kendra will close us. Father, I too thank you for these stories of sheep farmers and nomads and prostitutes and warriors and prophets who have left us such an example. And Father, I thank you for the people that you've brought into our lives that we can glean from there their lives, of how they know you. Father, it's my prayer this morning for everyone that is um, listening at home and everyone in this room that our friendship with you grow deeper, deeper by the day, so that as we grow older and our bodies start to fail, our spirits will flourish, flourish with the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.